enlightenment. <laughs> but of course, in my own way. And uh, it will be a little more, in a way, from the Zen perspective, from, let's say more from the Zen tradition, uh, what I will talk about. But I think it's still, in a way, very similar, even to the, I think a Theravada practice can also fit in what I'm going to talk about. And first, I like to look at briefly about what in uh, Korean Zen are symbols of awakening. And there is three symbols, and they're actually what we offer when we uh, do a ceremony, and generally we offer, there is candles, generally you will have water, and also you will have incense. And so every time there is a ceremony, you lead the candle, you pour fresh water, and you will lead the incense. And why you do this is because actually each of these things is a symbol of awakening. And how so? The first one, the candle, actually what you can notice about the candle, so this one is not totally representative, but it will do, is that as the candle is lit, it disappears. It consumes itself. So very much a symbol of selflessness, disappearing as you give light. But I think there is also two attributes we can look in terms of a lit candle is that, in a way, it is illuminated, which, in a way, the candle itself, when it's lit, illumines itself before it just looks kind of just white. And then if you lit the candle, this is not very representative. <laughs> then generally, it, it, it turns, it's more lit. It's kind of become lit by itself. And at the same time, the candle is illuminating which means it illuminates for everybody else around it, around it. And to me, this is an interesting way to look at an awakening, that it's not just like a kind of a self-awakening, self-illumination, but that is also an illumination which is for the benefit of everybody else. Then the other symbols is incense. And the same thing, if you lit an incense, as it spread its fragrance, it disappears. Again, a symbol of degrasping, a symbol of selflessness, benefiting other while you disappear. And at the same time, there is another aspect to the incense, is that it is pervasive. The incense, He's not going to say, I don't like them over there. I ain't going to go that way. It's, it, it's, it does not go just, it goes everywhere without any discrimination. There is this pervasiveness. So symbol of awakening is not just, again, just for oneself, when it's in a very limited scope, but something which is very pervasive, which actually reach out to everybody regardless. And then the third one is water. 
So there is water, and then again, the water we can look in two ways. One aspect of the water is that it's reflective. Whatever, if you have uh, water, whatever comes in a way above the surface of the water will re be reflected just as it is. Again, the water is not going to say, I don't like those, I'm not going to reflect them, or those I like, I will do it better. It just reflects whatever comes upon its reflective surface. But there is another thing about water. Water is extremely adaptable. You put it in a round ball, it's round, square, square, flat ball, it's flat, etc., etc. So, in a way, in water, there is this idea of fluidity, of flexibility. And within that, in a way, there is also this other symbol of awakening, which is often talked about. And this is a mirror. Often we talk about awakening as a mirror. Because again, what happened with a mirror? A mirror reflects exactly what is in front of it. And the mirror <coughs> does not say, Woo, I don't like this horrible monster. I ain't going to have to reflect it. And I'm going to eject it fast. And it doesn't keep any of the monsterish quality. You just represent, reflect the monster as it is, gone, nothing is left. The most beautiful angel comes in front of the mirror. He doesn't say, oh, I want to keep her there a little longer. And he doesn't keep any of the quality of that angel. He just reflects it, and then he goes. So in a way, to me, the image of the mirror is that image of awareness of creative engagement where you're really present to what is going on without grasping, without rejecting, in a way without keeping anything while being really totally present and aware at the same time. But at the same time, I think we have to see that this image of the mirror as a symbol is a metaphor. Stephen and again talk about metaphor that they help us to kind of get a little of like a poetic vision, but it is not the actual thing itself. Like, we all need to become like mirror and become reflective surfaces. And so things reflect on us and we move. No, it's again a metaphor, because I think to me, in a way, if you are, if you are like the symbols of awakening, like the candle, like the incense, like the water. Of course, it's a symbol of selflessness, but it's not, it's, it's not a symbol of not responding. That there actually, there is this creative response. Once the obstacle to our wisdom and compassion are removed, there is that loving response. There is that compassionate response. So I think we have to be careful with this metaphor. I mean, the symbols kind of represent something. They give us an idea of something, but they are not the thing itself. And so in a way, for us, I would say the, this idea of awakening, in a way, if, as in the fourth stage of awakening, greed and hatred go, it's not, we're not left with an empty hole. 
avoid. But actually, what we left is with the capacity for a creative, wise, and compassionate response. I think this is very important to see that, in a way, the awakening is not just a state, and this is a wonderful state, and this is it. But actually, it's more a, from the, the way the Buddha talks about, it's a removal of something. So actually, our creative potential for wisdom and compassion can be activated in a skillful way. And that's why often, I mean, that it be in Korea, that it be in Thailand and in different places, what is interesting is to see, in a way, the compassionate activity of people who are so-called awakened. I mean, I had this friend in, uh, in uh, Thailand, I mean, a Western friend who went to study in Thailand. And of course, Theravada tradition is generally not known for its engaged Buddhism, so to speak. But what she was describing to me about this great teacher, very famous for his intense practice and very severe teaching in a way, that every day, because he was a great teacher in Thailand, everybody would give him lots of money. And of course, as a monk, he doesn't touch money. But every evening, he would disappear in a taxi with an acolyte and he would distribute the money to the poor villager. And she saw him do this every day. And to me, I never thought of that great master as going to the village and spreading the money. I just kind of imagine, like, you know, just sitting in deep concentration state. But to see that the, 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 the degrasping led to that kind of outpouring of compassion. And that's what I see also in Korea. You have nowadays, because they have the, the mean, the nuns, are, and the monks too, are doing all kinds of things for the prisoner, for the hospital, for the poor people, or whatever. In a way, because it is not awakening just for oneself, but it's an awakening which helps us to have that compassion, creative wise compassion for others which is not just a feeling, but it's something that we activate in this creative response to whatever is around us. But this is a, a longer discussion, and I think Sharda tomorrow is going to talk about compassion. But another thing, recently I read a book which is called The Day the, Voice, the Voices Stopped. And the book is, was about schizophrenia and a man who had schizophrenia. It's a very, I would say, a very good book, but an extremely painful book because it's very harrowing. His, his story is so painful, but I think it's a good thing to read. But what is amazing is I think the eighth chapter, which is called The Day the Voices Stop. So after, I mean, for, he had the schizophrenia from about 17 to 50, and he went through this terrible life, but with really a lot of creative potential, but each time he would kind of, in a way, kind of make himself, kind of trip himself again and again and again. And finally, I think the creative potential was kind of, kind of coming up a little more, and also he had the opportunity by then that there is a certain drug for schizophrenia which starts to seem to work. So he went to a therapist and she gave him this drug. Nothing happens. 
was the same. All the voices in this head all the time. For three months, nothing happened. He was the same. And one day, he woke up. And he could hear the noises of the car outside. He could hear the hum of the AC, the air conditioning. He had never heard them before. He was extremely frightened. He had never experienced this before. And over the day, he realized that finally the medicine worked and the voice stopped. But what it was not just that the voice stopped, is that in them stopping, he became more, he became aware of the world. And his heart opened to the world. He said it's the first time he saw the neighbor, and it's the first time he had a conversation with the neighbor. And he had been in the thing in the place maybe five years. And it's the first time he was able to hear the neighbor, to see this old lady. And when I read that chapter, I was very struck. And I wondered, is awakening like that? That by the, our inner mental, emotional patterns finally coming back to the normal function, suddenly we are more in the world. We are more aware of the world. We are more connected to the world. We have more compassion for the world. So in a way, awakening is not adding something. I mean, the way the Buddha described it, it's very much the something goes. And often, and this is personally why I would say, awakening versus enlightenment. Because generally, we talk of enlightenment. And as soon as we talk of enlightenment, Personally, I have the feeling that we have this image of us becoming Christmas tree. <laughs> and all these kind of light, you know, light around us, and we start to kind of, uh, kind of elevate, you know, we kind of elevate ourselves a bit too above the earth, you know. Kind of, uh, I don't know the word in English, I forgot. We're kind of... Uh, a levitating Christmas tree. I think this is a bit our image of enlightenment. And so often we sit in meditation, and this is what we expect, to become like a levitating Christmas tree, which most of the time does not correspond to the experience, I must say. We are very much sitting there, pain, thought, and all kind of things. Not much tree there, illuminated. But in a way, could not we see then, and that's what to me, the awakening, which is a, the translation of the word, as Stephen was saying, of body, which means to awaken. In a way, would not it be better for us when we think, in a way, of the practice, that we are actually aspiring to awakening instead of wanting enlightenment? Because to me, that's often what we see, we want enlightenment. But to me, we aspire to awakening. And so in a way, I would say awakening for me 
it seems to be more that the grasping. We kind of grasp onto things less and less. Grasp onto things less of ourselves, people, things, things in ourselves, things outside. But it doesn't mean that we are unconcerned or uninvolved. But I would say the de-grasping makes us more aware of others, like that man, and then being able to respond to the world. Instead of enlightenment being seen as is at the big experience. Because to me, often when we sit in meditation, especially on retreat, this is what we expect. We're waiting, it seems to me, for enlightenment to happen, or at least to have an enlightened experience. So we wait and we wait. And of course, then it seems kind of boring. You know, it might happen, but it's kind of relatively rare to have this very special experience. So in a way, what is it we are looking at? What is it that we are focusing in, in terms of the aspiration we have? And it seems to me that these three symbols of the candle, the incense, and the water, again, is more about dissolving than experiencing what I would call the Big Bang. Because I think often we're waiting for the Big Bang to happen. But then what? The Big Bang happened, and then? What do you do? As we say in French, are you going to eat it with a salad? I mean, it might be very nice, but possibly it is not so practical, this Big Bang experience. But I would say this grasping, yeah. I would say the grasping in our life will be very useful in terms of the allowing the manifestation of the wisdom and the compassion. And also, I think what is important to see is that, yes, the first time that we have what I would so-called an experience, let's say we feel quiet and clear or whatever it is, the first time it will feel like it's amazing. But why is it amazing? Because it is so different from what you feel generally. So the first time of de-grasping is like, Wow, this is wow. You know, it's amazing. Yes, it's amazing because really for the first time you experience yourself without grasping. And before you kind of tight and fixed and solid and suddenly. And what is interesting in terms of the meditation retreat, sometimes at one point you feel what I would call like your heart open. And how can one describe it? I would say the way I would describe it is at that moment, I have no problem with nobody. There is nobody in the universe I can think to have niggle with. At that moment, I love everybody because I'm not grasping anywhere. And of course it feels wonderful, especially the first time. Because generally you have a problem with somebody. Even if it's only one person, and you know hundreds still, there is that one, which is more on your mind than the 99 other. So you experience, wow. 
And you think, why this is amazing. This is really special. But the problem is, you might experience this again. Quietness and clarity, opening of the heart, but it is not so different anymore because you're starting to change. So, of course, you won't be so razzmatazz because you're not so different, so won't, there won't be like this huge gap. Now it's kind of more, oh, oh yeah, oh yeah. So I think, and then over time you say, my meditation is not working. I don't have that amazing experience I had 10 years ago when I was in the Ganges. I had a friend who had an amazing experience, the first experience when she was in the Ganges, and then for the next 20 years she wanted to repeat it. I think she could have a different experience, but I don't think she could have again that amazing experience in the Ganges, even if she went in the Ganges every day. Because the second time, the third time, the tenth time, it's not the same. There is not such a difference. The degrasping is starting to work. And I think this is why. Often you have these Zen stories. And I know Zen is supposed to be more direct and faster and everything like that. But if you look, generally, you know, it takes them seven or eight years to get anywhere and to have one of these awakening experiences. But what is interesting is what do they say when they have an awakening experience in the Zen text? They generally say, oh, it was there already. Oh, oh, it's just that. They don't say, oh, I had the Big Bang. It was razzmatazz, wow. No, 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 generally it's very interesting. If you look, a lot of the text said, it's like something, they say, it's like something is in front of your nose and you don't see it. Another metaphor is like a fish looking for water when he is within it. So in a way, what you realize is not something different and amazing, but it's more yourself in a flowing, degrasping state. So as, as I mentioned in the, in the questioning, that's why, that in the discussion, that's why I think what is interesting in these two stages we are talking about, the one of the greed and hatred, dissolve, uh, kind of weakening, and the, second, the third one of the greed and hatred dissolving. To me, I don't think this is kind of impossible for us to achieve in small bits or in a little while. I think we can all experience moments when the exaggeration goes, when the proliferation goes. I mean, the third one, yes, that I think, as I said, is a little more difficult to not have that automatic, I like, I dislike. I know this is a minor metaphor, but to me it's like when I used to pass in my mother's living room and she had the TV on and there would be a football match on and I would sit there just to keep her company. And within five minutes, I was for the blue against the red. I did not know who the blue were, I did not know who the red were, but immediately I was for and I was against. And that's why I saw it's so, I mean, we, again, this is this need to categorize, this, this need we seem to have. And so I think this is 
the Buddha says, look, I mean, this is also painful. And how can you try to dissolve it? So I'm not saying we can dissolve it all the time. But I think, to me, it is a worthy aspiration to try to work with greed and hatred. And so at that level, personally, I would think that experiences, you see, meditative experiences, I would say, yes, they're nice. You feel quiet and clear, you feel loving or at one with the universe, whatever way you interpret it. But generally, they happen in certain circumstances, most of the time, very definite, narrow circumstances. And also, they don't last forever. They generally, you see something or you feel something, it lasts an hour, a week, but generally, it ends because it too is impermanent. And generally, those experiences rarely diminish the habit. This, I think, is an important point to look at. You might have an experience of the Buddha nature. You might have an experience of cessation. You might have an amazing insight in impermanence. But my question would be, do you bring this in your daily life? Do you make this organic? in your daily life? Does it make a difference? Does the experience stay on the cushion? Or does the experience is used to weaken the habit, to diminish the power of the habit? And this, in a way, leads me to this, in a way, uh, important idea which you find in the Zen tradition, which is this idea of sudden and gradual. And of course, in the Zen tradition, this is a huge debate. You have the sudden, sudden, the gradual, 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 sudden, <laughs> sudden, gradual. <laughs> Buddhist likes to do these things. And of course, the best one is sudden, sudden, and the worst one is gradual, gradual. <laughs> they like things which go fast. And this came back, I mean, in terms of history, the, I mean, as, as it's presented legendary, I mean, this is more like a legend. It's kind of like a framework for this debate. Or is a practice or the awakening sudden or gradual? Basically, that's what the debate is about. And so the legend goes this way. You have uh, the fifth patriarch, Zen patriarch in China in the 600-something, who is getting old. And he wants to pass on his mentor, the next patriarch, the sixth one. And so he says to the assembly, yes, you know, I want to pass the mantle on to somebody. Please, you know, show me your understanding. And the one who has the best understanding will become the sixth patriarch. So, of course, in the monastery, all the monks said, ooh, we don't know enough. The abbot should do it. You know, he's the one who should show his understanding. And the abbot said, well, you know, I have to show my understanding. They expect it of me. So he writes a poem on the wall. The master sees a poem and says, yeah, yeah, it's a good poem. So here is a poem of Shen Shu. And that's what Shen Shu says. The body is a body awakening tree. The mind is like a clear mirror. At all times, I must strive to polish it 
and must not let dust settle. Shall I say it again? The body is an awakening tree. The mind is like a clear mirror. At all times, we must strive to polish it and must not let dust settle. So basically what he's saying is that within this body, there is a potential and the seed of awakening. The mind is like a clear mirror, which is spacious and reflective and non-grasping. And through the practice, the cultivation of the three training of ethics, meditation, and wisdom, we can, in a way, try to stop for the defilement to stick to us. So in a way, it's a bit like kind of a, you know, when it's raining and your car, when it's really, really raining and you have a lot of the water on the, how do you call it, the screen? Windshield. windshield. And then you have, what do you call this? Okay, windshield wiper. But it's a bit the same. It's basically saying be like a windshield wiper. You know, don't let the water stay on the windshield. Let the, don't let the defilement stick to this mirror-like mind. So practice, cultivate. So that's basically what he says. And so in a way, this is what I would call a practical approach to the practice, where you bring your whole body, mind, and heart, and you see, and you observe, and you work with the defilement. Then, of course, in the story, the legend, somebody else heard this poem and thought, I can do better than that. And that was winning the sixth patriarch. So I think it's kind of his people who made the story up, but never mind. And this is what he says. Body awakening originally as no tree. The mirror also as no stand. Buddha nature is always clear and pure. Where can dust alight? I say it again. Awakening originally as no tree, the mirror also as no stand. Buddha nature is always clean and pure. Where can dust alight? And so basically he's saying, awakening is not containable, fixable, specific, set anywhere. It is non-grasping, the mirror is not even contained within any border. So you have a very expensive, wide open view of the experience. It reaches out everywhere. And so in a way, he's basically saying it is there all the time. And in a way, nothing can touch it. And one could say it's a little, we could use a metaphor of the sun behind the clouds. The sun is shining all the time. But if it's covered by clouds, and if it's raining, we get wet, the sun doesn't get wet. So it's a little the metaphor is presenting, a, presenting to us. And, so, and he said there is no stickiness. And because there is no stickiness, nothing can stick to it. So basically, de-grasping. And I would say this is a mystical vision of the practice. But, and Personally, I would say the practical and the mystical are not opposed, but I would see them as complementary. That actually the practice, our practice has two dimensions, what I would call the dimension of depth 
and the dimension of width, and that we are at the crossroad of these two at any given moment. And so in a way, we don't need to choose one of these dimensions. I think we are in the two dimensions at any given moment. And in a way, we need to cultivate these two dimensions, what I would call the formal aspect, the informal aspect, what one could say, the meditation on retreat, meditation in daily life. And I think again and again, we can be at the crossroad. We don't have to choose just one. I think the practice will develop when we are at the crossroad and when we develop both aspects. And one aspect is development, developmental. That over time, we practice, we train, we try, and we progress. I know people say, I sit in meditation, I have no goal. Come on, at least you have the goal of no goal. But you have a goal. I mean, we don't just sit there because there is nothing else to do. And if I did not do that, I would do basketball. No, we generally do this because we aspire to awakening. We aspire to transformation of our negative habits. I think that, I mean, generally we do this for that. So yes, at that level, we cultivate. And at that level, there is progress. To me, it's very fairly obvious. And, but there is also another aspect which is sudden, which is not engineered, and which is just open, just de-grasping. And we experience this in meditation. We sit in meditation. It's not that we do anything different. And suddenly, yeah, we are quiet and clear. And we can't say that we have engineered it. We can't say we've made it happen. But the fact that we practice help it to happen. So in a way, we have to see there is these two aspects to our practice at any given moment, the gradual aspect and the sudden aspect. And also to be careful if we just cling to one, if we just in a way say the practice is only gradual, then what you have is very precise steps. And then it becomes very deterministic. And the problem with that is that then you have very fixed expectation. It is quite narrow. And not everybody is going to fit these steps. I had a friend, she went to practice in Thailand. And it was a temple where you were expected to do a very specific type of meditation, which was supposed to have very specific effect. And so every morning, five o'clock, how was it? And every morning, five o'clock, nothing happened for, to her. And so in a way, it was a little difficult for her because it sounded like most other people would feed the step. And so they would move on and her, she was stuck, you know. Nothing is happening as they say it should happen. I'm not saying it is not going to happen like they say, but what I would say, not everybody is going to fit that model. I think this is in a way the problem with the determinist one when they are very precise steps, is that not necessarily everybody will be able to do it in that way. There is always a percentage who won't. And, but on the contrary, if you think the meditation, the practice is just sudden, this is it, just sudden, nothing else needed, just this sudden awakening, this sudden enlightenment, 
this sudden experience. This is it. That's all I'm going for. The problem, as I mentioned already, is that it's not always functional. When you are in that amazing state, generally, you know, try to give direction to somebody, you know, wants to go to the capital or I don't know where. You know, if you are in this really kind of deep concentration state or whatever, generally it's not very functional. Another thing is that it's often one-dimensional. Again, it's not, I would say, multi-dimensional. And kind of, sometimes it's hard to have a creative response within that state. And third thing, what tr troubles me the most with this sudden aspect, this sudden path, is that a lot of the people who go for the sudden path, for some reason, as soon as they've got the experience, ethic goes. And they drink alcohol and they have sex. And I wonder, but why? I mean, it seems that once you have that special awakening or enlightenment experience, you can do anything. If you can do anything, why choose to do alcohol and sex? This, I think, is a little kind of dubious myself. But anyway, this is my... And that's what I have a problem with that. That idea that it's a state which is transcendent and beyond anything, and then good and bad don't apply to me. And then why do you choose to do bad? This is what I found interesting, instead of choosing to do good. But anyway. So... I must reveal that in my monastery, uh, in the difference to most other monasteries in Korea, most other monasteries in Korea were sudden, sudden. Sudden awakening, sudden practice. But in my monastery, we were sudden gradual. So we were a little looked down upon. But personally, I think it seems to me much more healthy. And this is from Master Bojo, who took it from Master Tawei and Tsungmi in China. But Master Bojo was a Korean master who had built a temple in the 12th century. And he proposed that there was sudden awakening followed by gradual practice. Another sudden awakening followed by another gradual practice. And to me, I must say, it makes much sense. And I think this is why, for this reason, that my teacher had three awakenings. Because each time he had an awakening or an insight, and then he had to make it organic in the world. Then he practiced more, another one. And what was beautiful is that when, I mean, when you have these experiences in Korea, you generally write a poem that you then show to your teacher. And so when he showed the third poem, to his teacher, his teacher said, before I was your master, now I will become your disciple. And he was basically telling him, now you know you have experienced more than I. And in a way, that's what a teacher is for. In a way, a teacher is to make oneself redundant so that the disciple becomes one's own teacher and then, of course, a teacher to others. And so I would say, the sudden insight, opening, seeing, this is very essential, but it might be just a glimpse of de-grasping or experiencing our creative potential. But I think it's quite essential to experience that, because this really will lead to great faith. And in Korea, they say, yes, in a way, before you have 
even second of that kind of experience of degrasping, you have what they say, ordinary faith. But once you really experience it for yourself, they say you have great faith because you know what you're doing. You know what you're working on. And then you have really confidence in yourself and also, of course, confidence in the practice. And then you need the gradual practice to dissolve the habits, to continue to dissolve the grasping in daily life so that the insight, the awakening becomes organic. And then there can be more opportunity for more insights and for more gradual practice. And we can see this in a way if we look at the way the Buddha has been seen over the century in Buddhism. It has evolved, the view of the Buddha. At the beginning, there was an idea that you, the, the Buddha was just a bodhisattva striving for enlightenment. And then he had many, 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 many lifetimes. And then finally, in the last life, he had the full, complete, big awakening. My only problem with this schema is that he had to be reborn as a man. <laughs> Ladies, forget it. Complete enlightenment, not this lifetime. Personally, I have a little problem with a sexed awakening, but that's my problem. <laughs> then you had the next notion, which was of not the complete, fully enlightened Buddha, but that in each of us, there was, in a way, the seed of a Buddha. And so if we watered the seed and cultivated it, then over one lifetime, we could become a Buddha. Not the Buddha, but a Buddha. And then there was more development of that idea. So over time, what you find in the Zen tradition is the idea that we are Buddhas already. And the only thing we have to do is actually to realize it and to manifest it. So in a way, to be, to have, to have the compassion, the wisdom of the Buddha in our daily life. So in a way, to be Buddhas, that in a way, our practice there is to be Buddhas, to have that kind of compassion, that kind of wisdom. But at the same time, to remember, because there is this famous saying from the Avatamsaka Sutta, all sentient beings, are Buddhas, but all Buddhas are sentient beings. So in a way, we oscillate from Buddhahood to sentient beinghood and back and forth. And so when there is a moment of the grasping, we can be a Buddha. When there is a moment of grasping, then we are ordinary human beings. And to finish, I just would like to read two poems, which actually are like poem of awakening of an elderly nun in Korea, one of very respected nun who practiced all her life, and she was amazing. And uh, I wrote her life down, and it's in a, in a book I uh, was published last year. And so that's two poems that are included in the book. And that's what she says. Buddha cannot see Buddha sees Buddha. I cannot see I, sees I. I saw the nature 
Awaken to the way. What rubbish. Then the other one. Clear water flows over white rock. The autumn moon shines bright. So clear is the original face. Who dare say it is or is not? Now there is a walking meditation before the final sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.